There Are No Girls on the Internet is a production of iHeartRadio and Unbossed Creative. I'm Bridget Todd, and this is There Are No Girls on the Internet. Hello! How have you been? Probably not great because it feels like the whole world is on fire. This week, Texas passed over 600 new laws. And a good bit of those laws are based on the kind of escalating myths and disinformation, conspiracy theories, social media-fueled culture wars, and scaremongering that we've spent the last year breaking down on this very podcast. There is a lot to be mad about, so let's get into it. Now, a lot of people are rightfully talking about SB8, the law limiting abortion access in Texas, which we'll get into in just a moment. But that is not the only legislation in Texas that shows what happens when disinformation becomes codified into law. The Texas legislature also passed HB 3979, which bans school teachers from discussing systemic racism and current events in class. It also outright bans the teaching of the 1619 Project. As you'll recall, Nicole Hannah Jones' 1619 Project became the target of right-wing racists. There's also a new law that allows anyone over the age of 21 to carry a gun without training or a license, as long as they're not already legally prevented from doing so. So basically, yes to guns, no to abortions. Then there's just a bunch of ridiculous culture war stuff, like the so-called Stars Bangled Banner Act, a law that requires professional sports teams in Texas with state funding to play the national anthem before games, which I'm sure, as the pandemic rages, is the most pressing issue on the minds of most Americans right now. So let's get into SB 8, Texas's new law that severely restricts abortion access. This law is bad, and it's what abortion advocates have been warning about for years. The law prevents abortions as early as six weeks into pregnancy. Now, many have been calling this a six-week abortion ban, but the way we're talking about it is really imprecise, and that seems like it might be by design. It isn't six weeks after you get a positive pregnancy test. It's actually six weeks after the first day of your last period. So that, quote, six weeks is actually four weeks after conception and just two weeks after your missed period. That's right, before many pregnancy tests that you'd buy in a store would even be able to tell you that you're pregnant at all. So that would only really leave you with two weeks to suspect that you may be pregnant, get a positive pregnancy test, make an appointment, have an ultrasound, wait 24 hours, and then have a second appointment with the same provider to comply with Texas law. So basically, the window to get a legal abortion is basically so narrow, it's closed before most people would even know they're pregnant in the first place. And this is only if your period comes like clockworks each cycle. But we know many people have irregular periods. It's a totally normal thing. But this law ignores that medical reality and is based instead on fictions about how our bodies work. Even the way these laws are framed as so-called heartbeat bills restricting abortion when there's a fetal heartbeat are distortions about the reality of pregnancy. The quote, fetal heartbeat talking point is just misinformation intended to deceive and even the press falls for it by repeating it. At six weeks of fetal development, there is no heart to have a heartbeat. Doctors say the sound that Republican lawmakers are inaccurately calling a heartbeat is actually just the motion of an electrical pulse in a growth known as the fetal pole. But Republican lawmakers know that using this inaccurate language makes an early stage abortion seem like a shameful, immoral choice rather than just a commonplace medical procedure. 
which is why they use this deceptive language in the first place. So this law is definitely based on complete fictions and lies about our bodies and how they work. But that isn't even the worst part. So just who enforces this law? The state? The government? Oh no, much worse. Any private citizen. Let me say that another way. Any random asshole. This law allows private individuals to sue abortion providers or anyone who assists in providing an abortion for up to $10,000. It doesn't matter if the person suing is an abusive ex, a rapist, or just some random stranger with no connection to the person getting an abortion whatsoever. It essentially creates a bounty for abortion providers or people who assist in abortions. And yeah, it could even be used to sue an Uber driver who drives you to an abortion appointment. There's already a tip line website asking people to turn in people they suspect of aiding in abortions. So yes, things are pretty bad, but honestly, this is nothing new. The anti-choice movement has always used lies and distortions to pass laws restricting abortion access. Now, why do they do this? Well, it's because most people actually support abortion access. So anti-choice advocates, they have to turn to lies in order to sway the public. But y'all, this is not just about Texas. We've seen more laws restricting abortion access this year in 2021 than in any other previous year. This is according to a study by the Guttmacher Institute. It's just part of a national agenda to end abortion access in this country. This Texas law sets a dangerous legal precedent and could create a path for other states to make abortions unattainable to people who need them. And we expect to see similar bills introduced in states across the country. And honestly, it's not even really just about abortion. From laws attacking trans youth and immigrants and queer folks, this is yet another in a series of legislation fueled by distortion and lies. The power of lies and disinformation was on full display earlier this year, when states were passing laws rolling back voting rights in response to the complete fiction that the 2020 election results were rigged because too many black and brown folks voted. Now, we told you about this earlier this year in an interview with Anoa Changa, a Georgia-based journalist, about how these attacks are not just about voting or abortion, but rather a coordinated network of attacks on marginalized people and our democracy. So let's revisit what happens and who gets harmed when disinformation is codified into law. We've talked a lot about disinformation this season, but what happens when lies and distortions actually become law? Well, that's exactly what's happening in Georgia. Trump's big lie that he won the election and it was being stolen from him is being used to fuel a sweeping new law that many advocates say creates barriers to voting that will make it harder for all Georgians to vote. But it doesn't start there. I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes, which is one more than we have, because we won the state and flipping the state is a great testament to our country. On January 2nd, Trump had a now infamous phone call with Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, where he falsely maintained that he'd won the election in Georgia and pressured Raffensperger to, quote, find more votes in an attempt to make that fiction a reality. In the end, Raffensperger certified the election results because there wasn't a reason not to. After a statewide audit of the 2020 election results, Raffensperger himself said that Georgia's historic first statewide audit reaffirmed that the state's new secure paper ballot voting system accurately counted and reported the results. So according to him, the election was secure. And yet, 
the so-called Election Integrity Act of 2021, was signed into law by Governor Brian Kemp. This law makes massive changes to how and when folks can vote in Georgia. Now, Kemp said this law was necessary to boost confidence in, quote, secure, accessible, and fair elections. But if his own Secretary of State says the Georgia election results were accurate, then what's really going on? Well, this is an example of what happens when disinformation becomes codified into law. Despite what Trump said in that phone call, there was no voter fraud or election fraud in Georgia. But that didn't stop the Georgia legislature from passing this bill that voting rights advocates say will overwhelmingly create barriers that keep black and brown Georgians from voting. And it was all based on a big lie. It's so important that we talk about this law for what it is and the impact it will have on Georgians, which is something Anoa Changa knows firsthand. It was really rooted in self-determination for me. In 2017, Georgia was facing a closely watched Democratic primary for governor between Stacey Abrams, a Black woman who, if she had won, would have become the country's first Black woman governor, and Stacey Evans, a white Georgia state representative. Both candidates were speaking at Netroots Nation, the largest gathering of progressive political organizers in the country, which was being held in Atlanta. Now, something to know about Netroots is that there is always a protest. It's basically expected at this point, and speeches always get interrupted by shouting. It's happened to Bernie Sanders, Joe Biden, Elizabeth Warren, and Martin O'Malley. It's a thing. In 2017 at Netroots, I was a part of a group of folks who, you know, led a protest to shut down um, a speech that was being given by Stacey Evans, who was at the time running against Stacey Abrams for governor. And a lot of people thought it was just a bunch of old Stacey Abrams supporters who were shutting down this white woman but that, like, at the time, I wasn't even, like, a Stacey fan. I wasn't even, I was like, I'll probably vote for her. But it wasn't anything. And so many folks, what it was, was really about Stacey Evans was trying to be positioned as, like, the more progressive choice. And she had a bunch of votes, including some along education, which were extremely problematic, which she had, was not being held accountable on. And that day at Netroot, she was speaking before Becky Pringle, who was then the vice president of the NEA, the National Education Association. So you're someone who has been pro uh, charter school, um, pro, you know, removing money out of education. You voted against the interests of teachers, students, families, unions. And you're speaking ahead of like this prominent national black woman that has been this advocate for education. That's Anoa alongside a group of black women interrupting Stacey Evans's planned speech. They're chanting, trust black women. The incident came up in a tense debate between Evans and Abrams, with Evans maintaining that what happened at Netroots was not a peaceful protest and kind of implying that the group was affiliated with the Stacey Abrams campaign. And I support the right of folks to peacefully protest. That wasn't what happened at Netroots. And if something like that had happened to my opponent, whether the group was affiliated, unaffiliated, slightly affiliated, not affiliated at all, I would have stood up and said that it was wrong. But remember, Anoa says she wasn't even a big Abrams supporter at the time. Reporters just didn't really bother to talk to her or the group or find out more about their motivations or message and why they interrupted the speech. They just kind of ran with whatever. And this was hugely instructive for Anoa. 
Now, that didn't translate the way we thought it would, unfortunately, because no one in the media even cared to talk to us, to ask any of us about what happened, the way media reacted, like especially local media here in Georgia ran with a particular narrative. I mean, you even had like one one article written that just because I knew someone who was on staff, senior staff at Stacey's campaign, we had worked together previously, that because of that previous work relationship, they put me up to it. Without understanding that also when you're talking about black progressive political work, there's so few people in these spaces, whether you're working in black orgs or white led orgs, it's just not that many of us. We all end up either knowing each other directly or having people in common. So that experience really taught me about the power and necessity for telling our own stories, um, making sure our voices were being heard. Today, Anoa is a pretty prolific independent journalist who covers elections and local politics in Georgia. But instead of covering them like a horse race between two politicians, she centers the people impacted by the policies, people whose stories are often overlooked in favor of stories about political point scoring and posturing. And when it comes to the new voting legislation in Georgia, this also means pointing out a lot of lies and distortions. When we're looking at what's happening here in this law, like I was saying, yes, you have the lies from the different state representatives and state senators. You have the lies from the various um, election officials, you know, in varying capacities. But you have also our, our governor, who was the former secretary of state, who is known for his own shenanigans and foolishness. But I mean, he's someone who actually lied ahead of his own election for governor the weekend ahead of his election for governor. He lied and said that Stacey Abrams campaign and Democrats were trying to hack the state of Georgia, which was not true. An investigation later revealed that it was not true. And he has never been held accountable that. So we know Brian Kemp lies on the regular. Brad Raffensperger also has fell into this hole of trying to appease his party and placating and, and, and twisting, you know, rhetoric. It's one thing to deal with and be able to point out a bold faced lie, which we've seen in the testimony from Rudy Giuliani when he was in these various hearings in Michigan and here in Georgia, which we've seen, unfortunately, even in some of the testimony or some of the conversations happening in chambers in the passage of these bills by Republican elected officials. And I often harp on the Secretary of State because everyone has in terms of national media has like lionized him and made him this very important figure. But at the same time, he gives credence and he finds ways to give legitimacy, even though he has certified the election, even though he has acknowledged there's no widespread fraud, even though he acknowledged that this is the most secure election Georgia has ever had, all these other things, he will still say things that leave open the door that act like there is legitimate concern I mean, just even the widespread reporting of fraud that was happening, it was an issue. At some point, it's not just simply that people don't know the process and don't understand what's going on. It's people are being willfully obtuse. As I have for more than 25 years, I will stand with my fellow Georgians in pursuit of fairness. You see, I did so as a college student, speaking in the shadow of Abraham Lincoln and Martin Luther King Jr. I did so as Democratic leader of the House of Representatives, and now I will do so as a private citizen. In the 2018 gubernatorial election in Georgia, Stacey Abrams acknowledged that her opponent, Brian Kemp, would be the next governor of Georgia. I watched her speech from Atlanta, where, full disclosure, I spent time in the state knocking doors for her campaign. During the election, Brian Kemp was Georgia's Secretary of State, which meant that he was in charge of overseeing his own election. As Secretary of State, 
Kemp purged over 1.4 million inactive voters, with low-income and Black Georgians being the most likely to have their registrations canceled. He also oversaw 53,000 voter registrations being put on hold thanks to Georgia's exact match policy that flags registrations from voters with any kind of name discrepancy in state databases. So if you registered for your first learner's permit with your first and middle name and then registered to vote with just your first name, you would be flagged. According to the Associated Press, nearly 70% of those voter registrations on hold were black voters, despite the state's population only being about 32% black. Now, because of all this, Abrams has said the 2018 gubernatorial election was stolen from the Georgia voters. After the race, she formed Fair Fight, an organization aimed at increasing voter turnout and ensuring that all votes are accurately counted. It was hugely successful, and their work is often credited with securing the historic Democratic wins in Georgia this past election. But here's where things get tricky. Current Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger has compared what Abrams did to Trump's refusal to concede and pressuring officials to, quote, find votes. In a recent USA Today op-ed, he calls Trump's refusal to concede a page out of Stacey Abrams' playbook, writing, Abrams' refusal to concede and her dogmatic conviction that her election was stolen had done significant damage to trust and election integrity in Georgia. You have Raffensperger recently writing an op-ed in the USA Today and in part of the rhetoric from him and um, one of his staffers, Gabe Sterling, blaming Stacey Abrams and saying that her fight around the 2018 election and the ongoing lawsuit and the work of fair fight is the same as Donald Trump, right? A fa- that false equivalency. And so while that's not like this exactly the same as the outright boldface lying, like saying like, oh, there was massive fraud happening in Fulton County or whatever, at the same time, it still lends credence. It still gives legitimacy. And because they did have the one brave stand, which really was a matter of, I don't want to go to jail because that's hella illegal. <laughs> like, I mean, let's just be real. Like Brad, Brad did not, Brad did everything else in his power. Brad didn't want to go to jail. Cause that's like telling someone to go find some votes. This ain't scandal. Like that's jail, right? Like this is real life. And so but they will they will still craft narratives. They still will shift things that still give support. And then people who are like, oh, well, he's the secretary of state. He's an elected official. He should get some deference. will cover and report what he says and does as if it's legitimate concern. When, in fact, it's really just also in the 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 the, the furtherance of the Republican agenda, which we have seen very clearly over this past year. But I mean, you and I, you know, as folks who have been digging in and, and, and focusing and looking at the scourge that is disinformation, have seen how deeply entrenched and widespread it has been, particularly over the past several years and the very deep uh, digital networks and that already exists and like, you know, liberals and the left and progressives are way behind the eight ball. We react, unfortunately, to things where these people are very strategic. I mean, even I was reading an article this morning about one of the lawyers that was representing Trump with all that nonsense. She was actually one of the lawyers on that infamous phone call is now um, heading up or at least co-leading one of the efforts to attack HR1. And so it's not just Georgia, right? You see this coordinated GOP attack on voting rights and really on on democracy at this point, when we are having people lie and having those lies enshrined into law. And and, I mean, folks can say it happens in other capacities, but what's happening right now in terms of elections and election reform and how we are treating false allegations as valid considerations for law passing law 
it's a very scary precedent that's being set right now. I mean, it's so sad, but that's really been Trump's legacy, you know? After the election, I saw this poll from R Street that said that two-thirds of Republicans say the 2020 presidential election was invalid. And I think that's kind of the point of this kind of disinformation, to make people really distrust our democratic process to the point where they just sort of check out. Even in states where Trump won, right, we're still seeing that happen and unfold, right? Like in Iowa, we're still seeing a Republican majority in Iowa, even though Trump won that state. Let's take a quick break. Hey, ladies, it's Bridget Todd here. May is High Blood Pressure Education Month. It is crucial for us, especially as Black women, to focus on our heart health. We pour our heart and soul into every aspect of our lives, but often our own health takes a backseat. That's where Release the Pressure comes in. It's all about us, Black women, seeing self-care as an essential act of self-preservation. Whether it's for yourself, your family, or your community, your health is invaluable. Let's help get to our goal of 100,000 Black women putting their hearts first and learn more about their heart health. Here's how you can join in. Head to iHeartRadio.com RTP for a chance to receive a $1,000 gift card to take care of yourself and prioritize your heart health. Let's make our health a priority. Visit iHeartRadio.com RTP today. Together, we can make a difference in our health and our lives. Join us and let's take care of our hearts together. Hi, it's Bridget Todd, host of There Are No Girls on the Internet. Listen, technology has made our lives easier in some ways, but it's also made us homebodies, scrolling mindlessly. Well, you get the point. Let Rails to Trails Conservancy unstick you from home. When you get out on a trail and get to walking, you'll feel so good. Trust me. You'll see that being out on the trail is so much more than a day outside. It's good for your soul. Get ideas for getting outside on the trail from Rails to Trails Conservancy, the nation's largest trails, walking, and biking advocacy organization. Visit railstotrails.org slash iHeart and on social media at Rails to Trails. Y'all know I love the internet, but a sad truth about it is that it can be a scary place, especially for women, people of color, and trans folks. We've talked to people on this podcast, whistleblowers, activists, and advocates who are making technology safer, who then become targets for doing that work. But the truth is, it can happen to any of us online. That's why I personally use and recommend Delete Me. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online and makes sure it stays off. Sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts take it from there. Take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeletemecom slash nogirls and use promo code nogirls at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeletemecom slash nogirls and enter code nogirls at checkout. That's joindeletemecom slash nogirls code nogirls. So in 2024, one of my goals is to finally get serious about my finances. It's been kind of a big emotional thing for me. Thinking about money historically has caused me a lot of anxiety and stress because I have a lot of trauma related to money. And if you can relate, if that sounds like you, check out Fearless Finance. Fearless Finance provides on-demand, comprehensive financial planning by the hour. It's a new way to get financial advice without all the headaches, high fees, and commitments that come with traditional financial advisors. Fearless Finance planners don't sell anything. No used car salesman vibe here. And that means no concerns about being sold something just for the commission that it earns a rep. Their planners meet you where you are on your financial journey. No judgment, whether you're looking to buy a house, optimize your savings, or just want to make sure your finances are okay. 
They can answer your questions and help you achieve your goals. No question is too small. No problem is too big. Fearless Finance is making financial advice more affordable and accessible. You meet with your planner virtually, and they charge by the hour. Visit fearlessfinance.com today to get started. You can chat with a planner for free to make sure it's a good fit. And you'll get $50 off your first planning meeting when you use code GIRLS. And we're back. Democrats have their own legislation to expand voting rights called H.R. 1, which would expand access to voting by making Election Day a national holiday, offering online and automatic registration for anyone who wanted it, and prohibit the kind of voter purges that we saw before the 2018 governor's race in Georgia from taking place less than six months before an election. Now, even though we're talking about voting rights, Anoa says it's about much more than that. She says it's about a coordinated right-wing attack on democracy, like the waves of anti-trans and anti-abortion bills we've seen in some states. And any attack on identities is a direct attack on democracies. Like, we're still seeing them them push through these types of laws. We're seeing it in Mississippi and Missouri. Like, we're still seeing it in areas that even, like, they're seizing. This isn't just about, like, oh, we're upset because this happened. This is a real opportunity point for them. And this is, like, I really do think that we we ignore, we forget. Like, there's so much, with so much focus on Trump and resistance and getting Trump out of office that these state legislatures, these state, you know, capitals and, and governor seats, we've ignored the way in which that very and deeply entrenched rhetoric has permeated at the state level and is backed and funded by some of the usual suspects that we've been talking about over the last, you know, however many decades um, that that fund and get behind these types of work. And what was really interesting, someone sent me an article recently that talked about like some of the major anti-abortion folks are also getting in the fight behind HR1. Like, so we also see, I had an article a couple of weeks back in Truthout just talking about how, like when we're talking about voting rights and we're talking about what's happening in these fights, it literally isn't, we're talking about saving democracy. It's not just about voting rights, right? Like it's about all these other opportunities and entry points. And we're seeing some of the worst leg- legislation that is really def- denying people's humanity and right to exist when we see like the trans um, sports bills being passed in in various places, when we see these various attacks on, you know, uh, reproductive rights and freedom. And so we really have this much broader attack happening on democracy. And there are these various levels of lies. I mean, just thinking about the way the anti-abortion stuff happens, like uh, so much of that is based on fear mongering around mistruths and disinformation as well, right? So like it permeates across so much. In conversations about disinformation, it's tempting to focus on foreign bad actors like Russia. But sometimes that can lead us to overlook the massive coordination of domestic bad actors right here in our own country and the powerful networks of online distortions they have at their disposal. We spent so much time in 2017 post-election focusing on Russian interference, right, and Russian amplification of disinformation, but never looking at the disinformation itself, the domestic disinformation. And I think now, and I really appreciate, like, what you've been doing, like, so many people have been, like, sounding the alarm on the danger of what is happening domestically. I think now maybe folks are starting to understand, but it's still being limited to Trump's big lie, which Trump's big lie is really having a a grip on our national politic right now. But part of the reason why it's able to do so is because these networks have been able to thrive and have existed for so long and they're so deep and intense. And so like, 
it's a it, it takes it's a lot to like un, un, peel back those layers. I don't think people understand about like how people get targeted with disinformation, particularly when they come after Black, Latino, and other folks of color um, through the various mediums. Like I know, you know, Latino folks have talked to me about like the use of WhatsApp. I think some Asian folks too have talked about the use of WhatsApp groups, which are very common with both communities in terms of how they share and disseminate information. So what you end up happening is you might have somebody's auntie or whoever who sees like this post or sees this thing. It's like, oh my God, did you see this? And then it, it spreads like wildfire but like that information is not actually accurate, right? So we, there are these other ways that it's very insidious and in infiltrating trusted spaces um, that somehow we have to figure out how do we help people become, you know, better sharers of information and really like see through because there are some things that might kind of make sense. That That's like what's really tricky too, right? People will say things that might make sense. Like, Let's take, for example, the voter ID stuff, right? So in the Georgia law, you know, there's a new voter ID requirement for folks who are voting absentee ballot. And it will be like, well, what's wrong? You need ID for everything else. You need ID when you do this. Yes, you need ID. You need to prove who you are when you register. But once you've registered, like, why do I have to keep showing you the picture itself, right? Like, you need ID. You need ID when you go here. You need ID. Like, so people will do this thing. They're like, well, that makes sense. But the rhetoric, the rationalization has to do with fraud when the fraud has never been proven to be an actual issue, right? Like, so they, I remember, I remember doing some research during the election and like in Alabama, when Alabama was adapting its voter ID law, the NAACP Legal Defense Fund looked back 12 years prior to the year when they were trying to enact the law, trying to see how many fraud cases there were. There was only like one or two in a 12 year period. Right. And so like they will use the presence of like one or two and they'll be like, well, see, there's an issue because this one or two happened or someone made a comment about people changing, you know, ballots. But it was a Republican postal man in West Virginia that was changing people's request ballots. And but it was caught. Right. That's the other thing. Right. The very rare instances where things happen, the people doing it are caught like almost right away, yeah. right? Because of the mechanisms already built into the system. So media frustrates me too, because of how they report these things as if they're valid considerations on all sides, when really the only side we need to be thinking about is like democracy, right? And what does it mean to uphold and protect democracy? And how could you ever justify and rationalize and say you're protecting democracy by keeping people out? Yeah, I mean, you can't, you know, in a democracy, you want to expand voting access. You want to make it easier and get rid of barriers that people have to vote, not not enact more. And it was really disingenuous to see a statement today, I think from Kemp, who was like, you know, oh, we're widening the like the ability for people to vote. We're expanding it. And it's just a lie. I mean, you you you. There is just not a way that you can look at that and see the see the kinds of barriers that this legislation puts in place and try with a straight face to say that you're actually trying to make it easier for people to vote. If that's the case, why are you threatening souls to the polls? Why have you made it so to make it harder for people to give water to folks standing in long lines, right? Like if that's it's part of it to me is shocking how they can seize on something that might have a nugget of truth to try to paint a, a wider, a wider, you know, portrait of what's happening. To your point earlier about the networks and how coordinated this is, uh, before you and I got on this call, I was just doing a little search about like, what's the, what, you know, 
what am I seeing in like Republican or right wing spaces? Like, what's the conversation online? And what you said about like, oh, you need a vote, uh, an ID to go buy liquor. You need an ID to do X, Y, Z. Why is it bad to have to need an ID to vote? It was interesting to me that in some uh, large Facebook groups that are not even necessarily like explicitly political, I saw a bunch of memes this morning kind of making that point. And they make the point in a way that seems to make sense. You're like, okay, you know, I get the point that's being made and it seems, it seems non-controversial. But when you think about it, you're like, oh, wait, in context, that's actually really messed up. And then, you know, it's just interesting to me how how there are these networks online that are ready to echo and amplify the distortions of folks on the right about voting and disseminate them into groups of, of, of people who might not even be necessarily primed to be looking at like politically charged content. But this is exactly how we saw the Stop the Steal stuff spread, right? And the, the J-Racist insurrection, like, we, these people have been primed already. This is why you have so many quote unquote normal, mild mannered folks. They've been all wrapped up in the QAnon and whatever, because again, this stuff is overlooked. It's not seen as important to engage with. I just remember some years ago, just nonsense that would happen on Twitter. And then people would be like, why do you even waste time debunking that? Like, what's the point? Like, I've learned there are probably more effective ways to do things than having one-on-one arguments with dumb folks on Twitter. But at the same time, like when you have people with large platforms who are engaging in some of this, you know, both sides or these red herrings and stuff, it is dangerous because they are then informing and engaging so many other people. But like with these various groups, I mean, I've seen people talking about like the yoga groups, like some of them, even more like just basic spiritual type places that unfortunately end up being uh, places where there was a lot of widespread COVID-19 misinformation being spread as well. And not necessarily because the people sharing it themselves are malicious or trying to fool people like some of it made sense to people, but like whoever's putting it out there and creating it, knowing that people are going to pick it up like. um I think it was earlier this year, uh, there's actually someone being charged by the FBI, which I don't really know how I feel about this. But at the same time, it is a very interesting conversation to have. There was someone being charged by the FBI. And part of it was because they were disseminating misleading information, targeting predominantly um, black and I think voters of color. But they were sending out what made it seem like you could vote by using a text code if you couldn't get to the polls mm. and think about it, right? Like people were doing innovative things to help people vote in the middle of a pandemic. So if you're someone who's not very politically savvy, who doesn't know that you can't vote by text or by tweeting at someone, I mean, like to me and you, that might seem like, duh, of course you can't do that. But to somebody who doesn't know any better, who actually thinks that that could be a real legitimate option and their way of also engaging the process in the middle of a pandemic, that's kind of fucked up. And so like this person, I guess, got investigated and the other folks in this like group chat they were in also got investigated, but they literally had an had a chat. They were surveilling these multiple different groups in different spaces and coordinating, releasing these memes and stuff. Right. And so like I I mean, that type of stuff has been happening. And so to my point about the Russia stuff, like. What was happening with the Russia stuff and its place in the conversation, it really overshadowed the mass volume of what was happening domestically. And so people had years now unchecked to perfect that domestic system. And we're really seeing it rear its head in coordination with just the regular conservative, you know, legislative 
organizing that already happens. Like, you know, you used to see, people used to talk about like you would see the Alec bills that basically was the same boilerplate language in multiple states across the country. They're a little bit more savvy now because we're seeing similar things happening um, across the country. And it's clearly not a coincidence. Can you tell us some of what's in this law? Some of the most insidious parts of the law here in Georgia, um, it removes the the secretary of state as the head of the state board of of elections. State board of elections is a five person body. The uh, general assembly appoints two of those people. The general assembly will now appoint a majority three of the five um, with the removal of the secretary of state as the chair. So our Republican controlled legislature will now in effect control the, the, the state election board which the state election board sets down election, you know, purview regulations for the entire state, which is how we select our members of a general assembly. And, you know, there's a brilliant lawyer here that I, that I follow and really look to for guidance, Sarah uh, Tyndall Gazal. And she was just pointing out in one of the hearings, like how ridiculous it is. Um, one of, you know, the proponent bills proponents, Barry Fleming was like, well, I mean, the governor appoints the entire board of regions, the governor appoints the transportation board. And she's just like, okay, I guess I got to explain this to you, but that's fine. The governor point, appoints those bodies, but you all appointing the people who set the rules for how you all hold office isn't really like you're appointing your own referees and then we're expecting them to hold you accountable. Like it's, it's just a wild proposition. Here's how one voter described her voting experience in Georgia. And I don't feel like this is happening at all polls. I'm in a 30331 zip code, and I feel like most of the problems that occurred, and this is what we were told, that certain polling um, locations had problems. And I do believe it's, I think it's targeted. Another thing they did that directly targets Fulton County in particular is forbidding the use of mobile vans for voting, mobile voting. This was also something that was done in Harris County um, in Texas. Um, And so like that helps because, you know, uh, Fulton County, Gwinnett County, the Metro Atlanta counties in particular are often burdened with the very long lines. And so mobile voting was something that was implemented to help alleviate some of that. Uh, so it's basically setting up a mobile polling site. So that was that helped alleviate some of that. So like when they're talking about, oh, we're making it easier. How are you making it easier when you're restricting the time period within which people have to request an absentee ballot and return it? Because if you want, really want to make it easier, you could have adopted a policy that several states have where you return the absentee ballot as long as it's postmarked on election day or the day before election day, as long as it's received at a particular time period, it would still count. They could have went that route. So there are things that they could have done, but they chose more restrictive means. Now, a lot of the headlines about this bill have pointed out that it puts new restrictions on how volunteers can do things like give water or snacks or a chair to people waiting in long lines to vote. But it's even more worrisome than it sounds. So for folks who might not be familiar, like, Line warming is what it, you keep in a line warm, you keep people comfortable who are standing in line. I remember in 2018, um, the uh, New Georgia Project and some of their election protection folks, they literally sent a mariachi band to one line to keep people entertained because they were waiting in line so long. Um, And so because we have these long lines, because depending upon the weather, if it's in like, you know, spring, because we have very worn spring time here in Georgia, 
or if it's very cold for whatever reason or raining, you know, people have handed out ponchos, people have handed out hand warmers, food, like snacks. I mean, you have pizzas to the polls. You have uh, the chef for the polls with Chef Jose Andreas started the chef to the polls um, this past cycle too. So you have these other things that people are doing and they have tried to compare it to uh, partisan electioneering in, in the past. And you even had Brad Raffensperger telling media that it was in fact illegal and a felony. So before the state actually made it illegal, you had the Secretary of State telling people that it was illegal and you had people being harassed accordingly because of his misinterpretation and misstatements of law. So now that it is illegal to be within 150 feet, that's to say why that, that 150 feet, feet, why I keep harking on that is because that is the same distance that if you're representing a party or a candidate, you have to be away. So they have compared nonpartisan activity to partisan activity. And that's a very real attack on black and brown and other organizers of color who have been trying to help alleviate what we see. You know, we don't want people to be discouraged. So I will also note that because there's not anything clear cut in law and like voting rights law, period, the way people have tried to kind of just protect themselves and make sure they don't end up being uh, accused of violating any type of federal laws, because it, it has been a law, I think since the 40s, that you cannot give anyone of something of value for their vote. Mm. And so... Unfortunately, because of the discretion involved in our interpreting, you know, a secretary of state like Brad Raffensperger could interpret that as, you know, giving something to someone of value because they're in line to vote, which it's like, whatever, it's a stretch, but whatever. So how a lot of folks have dealt with that is like anyone in the vicinity, whether it's the poll workers, if you're at some place that has security, if there are other people passing through the general community, anyone can get anything we're giving out no matter what, right? Like it's a service. And, you know, when I, when I got a, I got some quotes when I was writing the article, like from the piece of the poll folks, one of the things they said was we see this as a way of incentivizing civic engagement in the general community. So we'll provide it to anyone. Right. And I know that several lawyers have advised people that that was the best way to handle it as well. But now it doesn't matter who you're giving it to, regardless, just the very act of being close to the polling location, they have now decided to criminalize. And that is a very clear attack in a very real way at something that is very commonly known to be, you know, seen as an added value and benefit to communities. And so we're seeing this a very real attack, not just simply on democracy, but on our participation as, you know, people of color who are exercising and leveraging that power. And, you know, a lot of folks are comparing this to Jim Crow. And I'd really be interested in talking to some historians just to learn more about that post, um, that early, the pre, you know, 50s, 60s civil rights era. So like, you know, the late 1800s to like the 1940s, 1950s, because it seems like in some ways we're really in that period, like post reconstruction, where we saw very blatant active attempts to strip uh, black political power from communities. This attempt to strip black communities of power via curbing access to voting is nothing new. After the Civil War, during Reconstruction, Black folks were attacked by racist poll taxes and literacy tests and other barriers to make it harder for us to vote. According to the Brennan Center, even though these laws are over a century old, as recently as 2012, 46 states allowed for voter challenges, laws that allowed any private citizen to challenge the eligibility of prospective voters on or before Election Day. Now, these kinds of barriers to voting have never gone down without a fight. Organizations like Black Voters Matter, led by Cliff Albright, have already challenged Georgia's new law on the grounds that it will unfairly hurt Black and brown voters. So it's going to be interesting about like how 
some of this stuff even stands up in court. Um, New Georgia Project, Black Voters Matter Fund, and Rise all filed. They they filed a joint suit the same night that Kemp signed the bill. So it's going to be interesting to see how that moves forward and unfolds. Um, but but the the voter challenges. So so basically, and this is like something that used to happen in the old days too. Like you could just go in, or really white people could just go in and be like, no, that person can't vote for whatever reason or whatever. And you would literally have to have like a white person, like someone come vouch for you. And so it's something very similar. Like they can come in and just challenge anyone for any reason. And that is very um, intimidating. It's very stressful. That is something that actually is very insidious. It also kind of feels like an attack on some aspects of the Black way of life. I know I have older women in my life who I call auntie and drop off mail and groceries and prescriptions for who are not actually my blood relatives. And I wouldn't be able to touch their ballots. You can't have other people collecting your ballots for you. And again, that might even sound logical to people, but you have some folks. What about people who can't get around and get out, right? Like we all know folks. So like if I know people in my general like life, unless I'm directly related in a household with them, I can't touch their ballot for them, right? But if they don't have anyone, and a lot of us live in families and community like that, right? Where we have Miss So-and-so who, no, I'm technically not related to her, but she's still my auntie or she's still my grandma or whoever. And it's not anything nefarious. For Anoa, the root of this is so obvious. It's racist. The root of it all is they are afraid that they won't win elections unless they do this. It's not like, hi, I should adopt better policies or maybe I need to not be so extremist in our positions. It's like, no, we just need to do whatever we can to retain and maintain power and make sure them darkies don't. Because <laughs> that's really what it is. That's really what it is. Like, we, you know, we talk about it, but it's like you and I both know what's up, right? Like, it's so clear. No, like no one wants to come out and say it. They don't say it. They, they dance around it. But it's clear that's what's happening. Anybody, anybody can see it. More after a quick break. Hey, ladies, it's Bridget Todd here. May is High Blood Pressure Education Month. It is crucial for us, especially as Black women, to focus on our heart health. We pour our heart and soul into every aspect of our lives, but often our own health takes a back seat. That's where Release the Pressure comes in. It's all about us, Black women, seeing self-care as an essential act of self-preservation. Whether it's for yourself, your family, or your community, your health is invaluable. Let's help get to our goal of 100,000 Black women putting their hearts first and learn more about their heart health. Here's how you can join in. Head to iHeartRadio.com RTP for a chance to receive a $1,000 gift card to take care of yourself and prioritize your heart health. Let's make our health a priority. Visit iHeartRadio.com slash RTP today. Together, we can make a difference in our health and our lives. Join us and let's take care of our hearts together. Hi, it's Bridget Todd, host of There Are No Girls on the Internet. Listen, technology has made our lives easier in some ways, but it's also made us homebodies, scrolling mindlessly. Well, you get the point. Let Rails to Trails Conservancy unstick you from home. When you get out on a trail and get to walking, you'll feel so good. Trust me. You'll see that being out on the trail is so much more than a day outside. It's good for your soul. Get ideas for getting outside on the trail from Rails to Trails Conservancy, the nation's largest trails, walking, and biking advocacy organization. 
visit railstotrails.org slash iHeart and on social media at Rails to Trails. So in 2024, one of my goals is to finally get serious about my finances. It's been kind of a big emotional thing for me. Thinking about money historically has caused me a lot of anxiety and stress because I have a lot of trauma related to money. And if you can relate, if that sounds like you, check out Fearless Finance. Fearless Finance provides on-demand, comprehensive financial planning by the hour. It's a new way to get financial advice without all the headaches, high fees, and commitments that come with traditional financial advisors. Fearless Finance planners don't sell anything. No used car salesman vibe here. And that means no concerns about being sold something just for the commission that it earns a rep. Their planners meet you where you are on your financial journey. No judgment, whether you're looking to buy a house, optimize your savings, or just want to make sure your finances are okay. They can answer your questions and help you achieve your goals. No question is too small. No problem is too big. Fearless Finance is making financial advice more affordable and accessible. You meet with your planner virtually, and they charge by the hour. Visit fearlessfinance.com today to get started. You can chat with a planner for free to make sure it's a good fit. And you'll get $50 off your first planning meeting when you use code GIRLS. Tired of hair removal tools that just don't cut it? Conair Bomb gives you smooth, flawless results while putting you firmly in control. From achieving that silky smooth skin to boosting your inner confidence, Conair Girl Bomb is all about helping you elevate your self-care game. Whether it's creating a hype playlist, throwing yourself into a hobby, or scheduling some me time, self-care is important to keeping you feeling confident and empowered. It's time to take your hair removal routine to the next level. You can trust Conair Girl Bomb to get the job done right. Conair Girl Bomb gives you the secret weapons for achieving powerful results with ease. Designed with women in mind, these tools boast the sassy Girl Bomb grip for unparalleled handling and precision, along with professional grade blades to deliver results that you used to only get from men's tools. No more compromising. So, to all you incredible women out there, treat yourself to a little Conair Girl Bomb magic. Don't settle for anything less than perfection. Elevate your grooming game with Conair Girl Bomb. Available now at conairgirlbomb.com or a retailer near you. Let's get right back into it. Kemp, flanked by a bunch of white male Georgia state legislators, signed the law under a painting of a slave plantation. When folks are pointing to Kemp signing that bill under a picture of not just any plantation, right? Like what someone, uh, several folks have just pierced out the history of the plantation that's depicted a very brutal, atrocious, you know, that held like, I think upwards of a hundred slaves like that with, and then, I mean, also you have him flanked by six white men, um, which I believe just quick, take a quick glance. And that's like six people who are above house and Senate leadership. I mean, the, the fact that, you know, the leadership of our government is all white men in a rapidly diversifying state like Georgia is quite telling. I mean, that's the other thing, right? Like there is this real fear that they are losing power and that's at the heart of it. But we know what happens when white fear controls um, policy, right? We've seen it. We've seen, you know, folks can act like, oh, the KKK or white supremacy is just some white national, that's some extreme outside thing. But unfortunately, a lot of those same tenets, a lot of those same attitudes influence when we're looking at the way in which people are charged with various crimes, when we're looking at the decisions that are being made, when we're looking at the way in which our children are treated in public schools. We see the very deep rooted 
nature of white supremacy across so many facets of society. So you can't just, you know, it's, it's not enough to just say this is Trump's big lie. Like it's so much more than that happening. And I'm just really like excited for the work that you're doing and the conversations you've been having around disinformation, because we really need to understand how these systems are operating and what role do we all have to play? And we, we really should take that role seriously. I really do believe that we all have a role to play in fighting against information. It doesn't matter if you are aligned ideologically. If you're a conservative, if you're someone who believes in more moderate or conservative values, you should want people telling the truth. Like you just, you should want facts. You should not want to exist with people distorting information and blatantly lying. It's a wild time we're in. It's a Bridget, like this is a wild time. <laughs> it's a wild time. I guess that's one of my last questions for you. What, what do you think is next for the state of voting in Georgia? Like what's next? Where do we go from here? Uh, we keep doing what we've been doing. Like, <laughs> like I keep reporting what I've been reporting. I'm sure organizers, like I just finished interviewing um, Cliff Albright and um, some other folks. Uh, Simone Bell is a former state rep. And um, and we were just talking about like, what's next, right? And conversations with folks are just like, so now what? And so folks are, you know, working through like, what does it look like possibly as economic boycott strategy or continuing the corporate accountability strategy as a pressure point uh, to paraphrase Cliff, just thinking about like, the Georgia law has been has been passed. It's now that's up now that for that specifically, that's up to the, the lawsuit, right? The legal strategy. There's always still the organizing strategy and working within the confines of the new limitations that exist. We see folks continuing to, you know, strategize, organize, and just get more people in the process. But that corporate accountability strategy, you know, folks are all hyped up about boycotting Georgia. And I personally tend to object to boycotts unless they are called directly by people themselves. As soon as the legislation was signed into law, people on social media began calling for boycotts of Georgia-based corporations like Delta Airlines and Coca-Cola until they came out against the law. Now, boycotts like these have been effective in the past. In the 80s, organizers called for a boycott of Coca-Cola and other U.S. companies if they didn't divest from South Africa to help end apartheid. But the difference is, those boycotts were led by local folks on the ground, not outsiders on Twitter. Anoa thinks any calls for boycotts should be led by organizers in Georgia, not people who don't live there. But also like with a boycott and, you know, I had folks, folks like, well, you know, they did it in the 80s with Coca-Cola. That was a part of a very strategic effort around divestment from South Africa. Right. Um, and I do remember as a kid, we did not drink Coca-Cola or wear Reeboks because of divestment. That's like the only thing like I, I really remember, you know, being a young child in the 80s. Um, that and then by the early 90s, like a different world episode where one of the characters had to give up or chose to give up a scholarship because the company uh, had not divested from South Africa. Economic accountability, economic corporate you know, boycotts, that stuff can work, but it's strategic. It has to be led by impacted people who are very clear on what the goals are. I think Senator Warnock actually said this really well in an interview recently. Um, you know, they're so busy asking Democrats about why the, you know, the filibuster, the filibuster. It's like, why aren't you asking Republicans about why they're not protecting voting rights? Right. Like why they don't care? I think that's what, but where we all go, I think we need to have a very clear commitment and understanding that democracy is not just some stagnant thing that just exists. It is really an active process that requires us to play a very clear, consistent role. So whether that's just being involved in, you know, even if it's being involved in your kids, like 
if there's like a local school council or something for your district or your school, or if it's, you know, when you can and have the time. Cause I also, I, I mean, I've been a single mom my entire adult life. I had my daughter when I was 20, um, when almost my entire adult life. I'm not going to discount the years their dad was around, but like I, you know, so I get being busy, right? Like I get having multiple competing things, you know, I've taken care of other people in addition to my kids. So I understand having other things pressing on us, but we can still find a way to write off that letter to, um, you know, now they, now with the technology is so easy. You can automatically send out the text to do stuff, the auto populate, the emails. I mean, we we can we can we can follow and support the work of black and other organizers of color not just here in georgia because yes there are amazing people in georgia but you know what there are awesome folks throwing down all over the south and really all over the country i think between georgia and the midwest not to exclude anyone else the south and the midwest i've met some of the most prolific organizers really grinding and working at multiple intersections of crisis right now because we still do we're still in the middle of a pandemic and we have the, the democracy issues and then just the regular issue-based you know, st- work that people are doing. So I think about folks like uh, Mississippi Votes, who uh, uh, the People's um, Advocacy Institute led by Rakia Lumumba and Mississippi Votes' Rika Bennett. Um, I think about work over in Louisiana. Um, I mean, and up in Wisconsin, you have uh, uh, lit leaders igniting transformation and block black leaders organizing communities. And those are both organizations that have worked um, around multiple issues as well as elections and civic engagement while at the same time holding space for community in the middle of a pandemic. And so these types of groups exist all over. Some of them may be smaller and may not be as well funded. And that's definitely where you like your support. I mean, like we act like, you know, donations don't matter, but like financial freedom riders are a thing in my opinion. Um, is definitely necessary. Not all of us can get there and be there physically in person. Not everybody has to be on the front line. That's one of the things I appreciate about the pandemic too, I think, that folks have learned there are different ways that you can contribute and being like literally on the front line is not the only thing of value you can do. Can you feed some folks every once in a while? That's that's also really valuable. So, I mean, I just think as we're wrapping up, like, you know, and just thinking about where to go next, also sharing good information, sharing podcasts and, you know, like yours, sharing articles like, like the ones I write, like that goes a long way because we don't necessarily have the same distribution networks that the other side does. And so we need to get our information out there. I'll just share a real quick personal story. Like I've had these conversations with my mother about COVID, sharing bad information about COVID, whether the vaccine or whatever. And she and it's the same thing. They target Black folks. It sounds kind of right, right? Like it makes kind of sense. They get you hooked in. But like I had to walk through with my mom. I had to point her to Black doctors she should be following. And one thing she said was, she goes, well, if they're saying such good information, why isn't their information being shared everywhere? I said, unfortunately, because of the way these algorithms work, the way the sharing systems work, she was like, oh, well, so taking the time to just talk to our folks, right? Like that's that's super critical. The bill attacking abortion access in Texas is just one more plank of a coordinated attack on our democracy and the rights of marginalized people. And it's time for all of us to fight back. Go to tangodi.com slash donate to support abortion funds in Texas. Got a story about an interesting thing in tech or just want to say hi? You can reach us at hello at tangodi.com. You can also find transcripts for today's episode at tangodi.com. There Are No Girls on the Internet was created by me, Bridget Todd. 
It's a production of iHeartRadio and Unbossed Creative. Jonathan Strickland is our executive producer. Tari Harrison is our producer and sound engineer. Michael Amato is our contributing producer. I'm your host, Bridget Todd. If you want to help us grow, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, check out the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, ladies, it's Bridget Todd here. As women, we put our hearts into everything. May is High Blood Pressure Education Month, and it's time to focus on our heart health. Release the Pressure wants to help Black women look at self-care as an act of self-preservation. During High Blood Pressure Education Month, let's help get to our goal of 100,000 Black women putting their hearts first and learn more about their heart health. Visit iHeartRadio.com RTP for a chance to receive a $1,000 gift card to take care of yourself and prioritize your heart health. That's iHeartRadio.com RTP. Hi, it's Bridget Todd, host of There Are No Girls on the Internet. Listen, technology has made our lives easier in some ways, but it's also made us homebodies, scrolling mindlessly. Well, you get the point. Let Rails to Trails Conservancy unstick you from home. When you get out on a trail and get to walking, you'll feel so good. Trust me. You'll see that being out on the trail is so much more than a day outside. It's good for your soul. Get ideas for getting outside on the trail from Rails to Trails Conservancy, the nation's largest trails, walking, and biking advocacy organization. Visit railstotrails.org slash iHeart and on social media at Rails to Trails. Looking for hair removal tools that not only deliver smooth results, but also empower you with a sense of complete control? Enter Conair Girlbomb, your secret weapons for smooth, sleek results made just for women. From the ultimate Girlbomb grip and professional grade blades, you don't have to compromise and settle for less. Conair Girl Bomb equips you with the precision and power previously reserved for men's grooming tools. So take your hair removal routine to the next level with Conair Girl Bomb. Available at conairgirlbomb.com or a retailer near you. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.